So chapter 5, verse 1, this brings us to the next miracle, and this is Naaman. Now, Naaman is now from the foreigners. He's a, well, what the New Testament would call a Gentile, but what the First Testament calls the nations. So Naaman, the commander of King Assyria's army, was esteemed and respected by his master, for through him, Yahweh had given Syria military victories. Now, that's interesting because he is Aram. And Aram remembers the corrupt, evil nation that constantly keeps attacking Israel over and over again. And God allows them to be successfully attacking Israel, only to judge Israel and to force Israel to get on their knees and surrender to God and cry out to him for help, which they haven't been doing. So this says that God has literally been given Naaman victories in battle. So this makes it very clear with many other passages that Yahweh also supports many foreigners throughout the world and gives them support and victory or success whether they acknowledge him or not. And he is one of these. So he's a highly respected Syrian general. And remember, Syria and Aram are basically the same place. But this great warrior had a skin disease. Not leprosy, just a skin disease. Remember, leprosy will not exist in this part of the world until the Greeks come along under Alexander the Great. Raiding parties went out from Syria and took captive from the land of Israel a young girl who became a servant of Naaman's wife. And she told her mistress, if only my master were in the presence of the prophet who was in Samaria, then he would cure him of his skin disease. Now, Naaman's got some kind of skin disease that is not bad enough that his excommunicated him from the military. So he's still able, now normally in the ancient world, you would be removed from the camp or removed from a city or removed from service and any kind of a thing. So skin disease must be bad enough that he's worried about it and that he wants to be healed of it. Obviously, nobody likes any kind of skin disease whatsoever. But it's not bad enough that he would lose his position in the military. But it could be growing into that for all we know. But we're not told... Um, where it is in its stages, how bad it will beget, because it doesn't really matter. In the ancient world, any skin disease is bad. Even today, any skin disease is bad. So he captures this young girl. Now what's so interesting <coughs> is that her family has either been killed and she has been kidnapped, or she has just been kidnapped. And she has every reason to hate this man. And she's old enough to be aware of the prophet Elisha. She's aware, old enough to believe that God can heal him. So she's an old enough girl to be aware that what has just been done to her family, what's been done to her, that she could have every reason to hate him or want to escape him. But instead, she's seeking to provide for him and to provide healing. And this is an incredible case where you have this unnamed little girl who that's really the only role she has in this entire Bible. And yet the faith of her and her compassion for her enemy is just absolutely phenomenal. And incredible. And so the Bible is going to show here two things. It is not the Israelites who are expressing faith in God, the older, mature leaders. It is the young little children, and it is the foreigner who's going to be seeking out God. In the ancient world, children were seen as insignificant. They were seen as a nuisance, something that just was attached to your heel to trip you up and be in the way. And it wasn't until they got through their bar mitzvah and Judaism or passed their test of adulthood and any other culture that they would actually be seen as worthy of attention and worthy of actually educating or that kind of stuff. Until then, they were just a waste. 
are not really a waste. They wouldn't seem that far, but just in the way and not really like capable of really doing anything significant. And, and fathers often would never pay attention to their children until they reached a certain age. And even then they were very harsh with them, culturally speaking. She is an incredibly insignificant figure, culturally speaking, and him being a foreigner who's been attacking Israel would be seen as an enemy. And yet the insignificant and the enemy are demonstrating greater faith in Yahweh than the Israelite king himself. And that's what's going to be seen here in the next frame. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Syria said, Go, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten suits of clothes. This is a lot of money. He brought the letter to the king of Israel. It, it read, This is a letter of introduction for my servant Naaman, whom I have sent to be cured of this skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? Can I kill or restore life? Why does he ask me to cure a man of his skin disease? Certainly you must see that he is looking for an excuse to fight me. And notice the king of Israel immediately responds with a lack of faith. He has no idea where to turn. Now this is incredibly bad because not only is he the highest image of God in the land that's supposed to be leading his people in the name of Yahweh, but he's supposed to be hand-in-hand partners with the prophet. The king and the prophet are supposed to be two sides of a coin, working hard, hand-to-hand, in partnership. And he has no idea to even go to Elisha or any other prophet for healing. And this shows you how far away that he has fallen as the man who's supposed to know Yahweh better than anybody else other than the prophet compared to a little girl who's been kidnapped and has a better understanding of Yahweh and the prophet. She knows about the prophet. Why doesn't he? And this shows the lack of faith that's beginning to happen in the leadership of Israel. Verse 8, When Elisha the prophet heard that the king had torn his clothes, he sent this message to the king. Why did you tear your clothes? Send them to me, so that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Like, duh, you should know about me. Why are you freaking out and acting like it's the end of the world? Just go to God. So Naaman came with his horse and chariots and stood in the doorway of Elisha's house. Elisha sent out a messenger who told him, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan. Your skin will be restored and you will be healed. Now we know later this is Gehazi who is sent out to confront Naaman. Now notice Elisha does not come out to greet him. He does not personally greet him. Now this could be Hebrew, Hebrews again, like what we saw with um the Shunammite woman, or it could be a test. Now, Amon went away angry, and he said, Look, I thought for sure he would come out and stand there, invoke the name of Yahweh, his God, and wave his hand over the area and cure the skin disease like Harry Potter. The rivers of Damascus and Abana and the Farfar are better than any of the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be healed? So he turned away and went away angry. Now, here's what you must understand. He comes from Damascus. Damascus is a far superior city to anything in Israel. Damascus is like the New York or the Los Angeles of America. And like any town in Israel is like Zanesville. So there's like, 
he, he does not see this as any comparison. Not only that, the Jordan River is a river that's fed by the Sea of Galilee. And it runs through some muddy, marshy territories. So it's a muddy river that is fed by a lake. And that's it. Where the rivers of Damascus are fed by the mountains. And they're fed by mountain springs or melting ice caps that flow down through the rocks. So they're crystal clear and they, they're, they're refreshing and they're cold. And the Jordan River is not. So he's like, look. And, and then the gods up in Damascus are gods of the mountains. And so they're way superior to the gods in Israel because one, Yahweh is just a god of hills. And the higher up you are, the more authoritative you are. And Yahweh's been, been, been defeated by their gods over and over and over again in Aram attacks. So he's like, look, I came all the way down to Zanesville to put my body in muddy river with your pathetic little governors. Like, you could at least, like, done something personally as a prophet. I came down to see a prophet, not dunk in a muddy river. If it was about rivers, I could have gone in Damascus with the gods in crystal clear, refreshing water. And he's angry about that. But it's the servant who shows a greater wisdom than Naaman. His servant, verse 13, approached him and said to him, Oh, master, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult task, you would have been willing to do it. It seems that you should be happy that he simply said, wash yourself and be healed. Now, in, the, in, in Greek mythology that hasn't come yet, but in the mythologies that preceded it as well, there are lots of stories where people had to do amazing feats of difficulty in order to prove that they're worthy of the gods' blessings or some kind of equipping. So, like, have you ever seen the beginning of Batman Begins, the one with um, Christopher Nolan and Christian Bale? Like, he has to prove his worthiness to be trained. So he tells him, like, Ra's Ghoul tells him, if you want to be trained by me, you have to climb this mountain in China with your bare hands and nothing but a jacket and pick this rare purple flower on the other side of the mountain and bring it back to me totally intact. And he's willing to do it because he's desperate for training. And that's a very common thing that shows up over and over and over again in these stories. And so the servant's like, wait a minute, you grew up on these stories, not Amman. And if he had asked you to prove your, your manliness as a warrior for worthiness of healing, you would have totally jumped on it like some jock ready to prove how awesome you are. But when he just tells you to dip yourself in the river, you freak out and act like this is below you. Just go dip yourself in the river. Like seriously, you should be happy. That's all you have to do. Now, Amman listens to reason, which is better than the king of Israel. And he goes and he does it. So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan River seven times as the prophet had instructed. And his skin became smooth as a young child's and he was healed. He and his entire entourage returned to the prophet. Now Amon came and stood before him and he said, For sure I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now please accept a gift from your servant. So this, he's compl- this is a huge testimony. He is a polytheist who's been worshiping many gods throughout his entire life. He just literally, like, I don't know how many hours it would have taken to go to the Jordan and come back, but definitely less than a day. Just hours ago, he was proclaiming how the gods of Damascus are way better than anything in Israel. And now he has completely switched his opinion. He has never known a single God who's in control of everything. 
he and his family before him and their family before them and everybody around him has always been polytheists. He's just bragged about his gods. And within hours, he's immediately switched his theology and worldview and says, I'm convinced that there's only one God now. And it's the God of Israel. That's an incredible change, an incredible paradigm shift that he has just done. This time, Elisha actually comes out and greets him. And it could be that Elisha didn't come out to greet him because Amon didn't just need to be healed of leprosy, or not leprosy, but skin disease. He needed to be healed of his pride. And by his unwillingness to greet him personally, he was humbling. Maybe he learned a lesson how he'd just been humbled by God with the Shunammite woman, and now he's like kind of practicing that on other people now. So he offers him a gift. Now, it's not uncommon to pay prophets and give them gifts. And there are times where Elisha or Elijah has accepted gifts without the narrator condemning them, which is no different than like pastors accepting gifts through donations to the church because that's the way they make their living. He says, I will take nothing from you. There's different times where they do take things and other times where they don't. It maybe has more to do with the power and the position of power that Naaman says and the fact that he comes for foreign territory. And that somebody can misinterpret that as that that's what made Elisha successful. And it's very interesting that Elisha has no problem taking gifts and prophets have no problem taking gifts from everyday normal people. But if there's corrupt men of power, they have a hard time doing that or they're unwilling to do that. So Naaman said, if not, then please give your servant a load of dirt, enough for a pair of mules to carry for your servant. We'll never again offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to a god other than Yahweh. Now this is interesting. This shows you, this is probably one of the passages in the Bible that really shows you how important land is to people in the ancient world. When we talk about the promised land and there's no blessings outside the promised land, and we talk about how the gods are limited to certain lands only and they can't influence other lands. And you kind of hear people say that and you're like, okay, yeah. But this one shows you very clearly how seriously they, they take this. He, he is so convinced that Yahweh is God that he's like, look, when I go back home, I'm going to be worshiping Yahweh in a, another God's land, another God's territory. And that ground is not belonging to Yahweh. And I want to take a part of the land with me. That, that shows you a deep-seated belief system that he wants to take up pounds of dirt and carry it on a mule all the way back to his land and like dump it in his garden or something so he can pray there, so he can be connected to the land of Yahweh. And that shows you how seriously they think this way and why God speaks of the promised land so often and so importantly, especially when we get the prophets and God emphasized how important it is that he's going to bring them back to the land. Now, one, we would say, well, yeah, but come on, that's just superstitious. That's not the way it works. Yeah, but what do you expect of this guy? Okay, he's already like paradigm shift majorly on who the most important, powerful God is. There's going to be a whole lot of paradigm shifts that have to happen in his life. And God doesn't expect your theology of God to become perfect the minute you accept Christ. Okay, we're still, I'm still working, you're still working on your theology. And if our admittance into heaven is dependent on us perfectly explaining the theology of God, we're all screwed. So it's, it's a gradual progression. So just like with Tamar, who slept with Judah, her father-in-law, to get into the Abrahamic covenant, you'd be like, that is messed up. But God calls her righteous because she 
did only what she knew how to behave to become a part of God's covenant. And God is okay with that to a certain extent because he never calls you to clean your life up. She didn't know better. All she knew was, I desperately want to be part of the Abrahamic covenant. And she did only what she knew what was right from her culture. And God could deal with her later after that. And the same thing, Naaman only knows that he wants to be close to Yahweh. And this is the only way that he can think until God begins to change him and do other things. And so Elisha grants him that permission, knowing that all that matters right now is that he feels close to Yahweh. If he has that relationship with Yahweh, then Yahweh over time can work on his theology of dirt and help him understand that. But at the same time, God himself even plays to this theology of dirt and land. All throughout the Bible, when he emphasizes how important it is to be in the land, and just crossing the Jordan River immediately puts you outside the blessings of God. So remember, he's speaking the language of their culture. It is much easier to take the language of a culture and use it to communicate who God is rather than to redefine every word and every phrase and every slang for them before you start (laughs) teaching them about God. So this is what God is doing. He's allowing it because he understands the heart of Naaman. And that's what's important. Then he says this, May Yahweh forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon, which is a, a Syrian, or a, um, an Armenian god, to worship, and he leans on my arm, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may Yahweh forgive your servant for this. Elisha said to him, go in peace. Now this shows incredible understanding of Yahweh. He automatically assumes that Yahweh is the kind of God that would forgive him and be understanding. And maybe he's piecing together some theology that he's heard over the years as he's been attacking Israel. And maybe he's heard he's attacked Israel and he's come across prophets. He's come across priests. He's come with other people and he's heard them talk. And now that he's convinced that Yahweh is it, all those pieces of the puzzle, what he's heard here and there start coming in. But not only has he seen Yahweh is absolutely sovereign over all things. He sees Yahweh as willingness to forgive him. And that's not innate in the pagan gods. And so this shows, like, this is a huge shift that's happening in this man. And he's accepting these new ideas with no problem based on the fact that God was able to heal him of something that nobody else has ever been healed of in the history of his life or stories or anything like that. And so he immediately says, look, I still have to serve my master, and this is still what I do for a living. And so when I take my master into the temple, please forgive me, because there will be times that I will kneel in submission, but I'm not going to worship. And that's clear by the fact that he's taking dirt of Israel. And Elisha grants him that. Elisha grants him that. Because even though he's going into the temple, his heart does not belong to the God of the temple. That says a lot about what, how God views us and how important the heart is. Now, you can't carry that so far and say, oh, then I can just go to like strip clubs and bars and hang out there all the time because as long as my heart's for Yahweh, I'm okay. No, 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 no. Because Paul also says in Corinthians, like, don't you dare go to those temples. Don't you know that there's demons there who are dark and evil and can lead you astray? God's dealing with individuals the way they are. 
See, Paul knows his audience. They're the Corinthians. And Corinthians, well, if you've ever read Corinthians, they're jacked up. They have not really transferred their heart and behavior completely to Yahweh. So in there, Paul is just like, no, 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 no. You're a recovering idolater. You're a recovering alcoholic. You can't go to those places. There are true demonic powers there. But yet Yahweh sees this guy's heart and sees like cold turkey, he will never go back again kind of a thing. He is so committed. And Elisha, God through Elisha, grants him forgiveness, understanding that that's not why he's in the temple. And that's huge. And once again, we can't develop incomplete theologies based on this one idea. We need to put it all together in the Bible. But that's incredible faith. Everything in this shows that this foreigner who's a military warrior, who is an idolater, who has been massacring people for a living, for the glory of building the Armenian Empire, which is not godly in any kind of a way, especially now that we got, um, well, Ben Haddad over it. And yet he's demonstrating more faith and putting more theological pieces of the puzzle together way quicker than any king of Israel ever has who has grown up on the stories of Yahweh, they have the law, and they've had prophets galore coming in and out of their palaces over and over again. And this is another one of those examples where when Jesus comes along the city of Nazareth, and he says, Behold, I tell you the truth. Though Elisha ministered in Israel, there was not one person who showed faith like there was the Gentiles. And Elisha went to the Gentiles, and they accepted Christ, or sorry, they accepted Yahweh more than any of the people of Israel did. That's what Christ is talking about. He's referring to these stories right here of the incredible faith. And what God is beginning to show is that he's moving away from Israel and he's going to the nations. And this is one of those other points where God is making it very clear that the true Israelite is not the ethnic descendant of Abraham. The true Israelite is the one who has faith. And that has been made over and over and over again in the Bible. When we saw them come all the way from the beginning of Egypt, even before Egypt, you have Tamar in Genesis chapter 38, who is a Canaanite woman who prostitutes herself to her father-in-law Judah to become a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And she is declared to have more faith than anybody in the descendants of Abraham. And she makes in the genealogy of Christ. And therefore, she's called an Israelite. And then in the Exodus, we're told that many Egyptians sacrificed the Passover lamb and left Egypt with the Israelites. And yet the entire group is called Israel. And God calls them Israel all throughout the Torah or the um, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And then we saw through Samuel, we have Uriah the Hittite and Ittai the Gittite. And we have all these people who keep coming in and they keep showing even more faith than anybody else does. And when we get to the prophets, he's really going to emphasize that true Israel is not ethnic descendants of Abraham, but anyone who has faith. And we saw that with Ruth, when she is a Moabite that came in. We saw that with Rahab, who is a um, a Canaanite who comes in. And we see that with Jesus when he says, you think you're special because you're descendants of Abraham? I tell you that God can make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks. It's about faith. And when God uses the word Israel, what he really means is people of faith, 
not genetic biological descendants of Abraham. That's where it starts. Because you have to choose somebody. And the minute you choose somebody, you're automatically choosing an ethnicity. But then when you go to the ethnic person, who actually was a Babylonian first, and you tell them you're to be a blessing to the entire world, then you automatically say, I'm not choosing a specific ethnicity too. And from the very beginning that he chooses a Babylonian and then starts calling him an Israelite and then tells him to be a blessing to the entire world, immediately shuts, shuts all gates to racism. It shuts all gates to ethnic specialness. There is no room for exclusion to anybody as we go through the Bible and see story after story after story happening here. And this is what Naaman becomes. He becomes the apex because God spends more time in his story and in Samuel and Kings than any other foreigner. And so he's showing us this is the ultimate goal because this guy is powerful, a pagan, a military man, and a foreigner. And yet even he can come to God. Even he can come to God. And this is significant. Then in contrast, Gehazi who's been trained by Elisha himself, is going to seriously miss the boat on all the theology that Naaman has just figured out in the last couple minutes. So he leaves. When he had gone a short distance, verse 20, Gehazi the prophet, the prophet Elisha's servant, thought, Look, my master did not accept what this Syrian Naaman offered him. As certainly as Yahweh lives, I will run after him and accept something from him. So Gehazi ran after Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and asked, Is everything all right? He answered, Everything is fine. My master sent me, now he's lying, with this message. Look, two servants of the prophets just arrived in the Ephraimite hill country. Please give me a talent of silver and two suits of clothes. Now Amon said, please accept two talents of silver. And he insisted and tied him up the two talents of silver. And they closed. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them to Gehazi. And when he arrived at the hill, he took them from the servants and put them in the house. And then he sent the men on their way. So he is lying. This is greed. And he has basically made God out to be false to what the prophet has said. But what he is, and he's also a ding-dong who has not been paying attention to Elisha. Because remember, one of the criterias of the prophet was, anybody remember? You must be chosen by Yahweh and you must be able to see the spiritual realm and understand things other people don't. And how many times did it say like, Jeroboam's wife came to disguise herself and Ahijah was like, knew it was coming all before it happened. And then it comes to Samuel and says, oh, by the way, there's a man by the same Saul who's going to arrive at your door tomorrow. Okay, this happens over and over and over again. And Gehazi has been right there next to Elisha as he's seen things that nobody knows. And yet he thinks he can hide this from Elisha. And he even hides it in their house. And remember, houses in the ancient world were like smaller than this room. And like, where are you going to hide this stuff? Elisha comes to him. Verse 25. When he came and stood before his master, Elisha, asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? He answered, Your servant has been, hasn't been anywhere. Elisha replied, I was there in the spirit when a man turned and got down from the chariot to meet you. This is not the proper time to accept silver or to accept clothes. 
olive groves, vineyards, sheep, cattle, and male and female servants. So he was like, I was right there next to you in the spirit, and I was witnessing everything. That kind of gives you a whole deeper understanding of how the prophets work and their spiritual gifts. Therefore, not a man's skin disease will afflict you and your descendants forever. When Gehazi went out from his presence, his skin was white as snow. So he's immediately struck with the disease that Naaman had. And this shows you, without a doubt, Gehazi is not going to succeed Elisha. He has failed to master the staff in healing the Shunammite's woman. He has failed to see the spiritual realm himself. And now he has proven through his moral character that he is not really about serving God. And so Elisha has no prophet that will succeed him. 